And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Last week we, uh, we entered into a dialogue that Jesus is having with his disciples immediately uh, after um, Judas has left to go and betray Christ and Jesus is there with the eleven that are solidly his. Uh, he begins to talk to them about the fact that he's about to leave and this dialogue is going to cover the next several chapters of John. And so we looked at last week that you just kind of begin to give them the bad news that he's about to have to go away. We know that, that this was very confusing to the disciples. Uh, Peter spoke up and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand with you. You know, I would die for you. To which Jesus says, Peter, you're going to betray me three times tonight. And so there's, there's much that has been said just at the beginning of this conversation, to concern the disciples, to think about, okay, our leader's leaving. Um, we're gonna, some of us are going to betray him. It's going to get that bad. And so their hearts are no doubt troubled. And so Jesus begins uh, encouraging them a bit to kind of settle their hearts. And this is what we find uh, in John 14.1 says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in, in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so, Jesus tells them, and they're dispirited and, and scary moment of, of beginning to understand what's about to happen here he says let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me he wants to bring his guys back to a place of hope and and where does he find that place of hope in in the literal place of where he is going and where he will rule from and where he is going to one day 
bring his people back to. Jesus goes to a place that he prepares for his people and a place from where he rules at the right hand of the Father. And so this morning, I want us to talk about Christ's place. This this place in which he speaks of in this text. First, Christ speaks of a place of dwelling that he goes to prepare for us. The first, the, the first, the place that he is referencing is a home for those who are in Christ. It says, in my Father's house are many rooms. There are many rooms. Uh, me and some pastor, some minister friends of mine, uh, back in the day when we were just getting into ministry, we were uh, either not quite married or, or just uh, getting started in marriage, didn't have any money, but we had, there's a pastor conference up north that we always enjoyed going to every year. And it was at this really nice hotel. And so what we would do, since we didn't have much money, is we would go and get one room for about eight guys. Now aside from the morality that was probably questionable there, probably violating uh, fire codes and violating the policy of the hotel, besides that, it was stinking uncomfortable. Because you were in a four-star hotel, you were in a really nice hotel, but most nights you were sleeping on the floor because there were too many people. I'll never forget when Brother Scott, who used to pastor here, went with us, and I didn't tell him about that. And we got to the hotel, and I said, oh, by the way, we're all staying in the same room. He said, no, we're not. And he immediately went to the front desk and booked himself his own room. We're in the place of of Christ, in, the, in the place of God that is prepared for us, there's no such worry. Jesus tells them there are many rooms. That there is comfort and there is there's a place of great joy and there's room for all of those who would believe in Christ. Um, I don't know. I don't know if this is literal. I don't know if there's a mansion that God has, and we all have a room, room 105, I don't know. I don't know if there's, just a, if there's a mansion just over the hilltop and we all get a mansion. I don't really think shelter is that big of an issue in paradise, folks. So I don't know the literalness of this, but what I do know is what, what God is saying, what, what, what Christ is saying, is that there's a place for you in the place of my Father, in, in the place where I go to dwell with my Father in the place of God. It's not just a place for God to dwell, it's a place that's being prepared for the people who love God. This is a beautiful thing, and and it's a reason not to let our hearts be troubled. Secondly, we see that it's a place that's that's made special by the presence of Christ Himself. Look what He says in verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. It's interesting here that, that Jesus kind of makes Himself and the place synonymous. right? He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and He doesn't say, I'm going to come again and take you back to that place. He says, I prepare a place for you, and then I'm, I'm going to that place, and I'm coming back to take you to be with myself. To be with me. So that where, where I am, you can also be. Listen, the greatest thing about heaven is not that grandma's there. It's not even that mom's there. It's not even that dad's there or your 
sweet, sweet grandpa that you miss so much. The greatest thing about heaven is, is not that there's going to be no sickness or no tears and no sorrow, although all that's great. All that's a great thing to look forward to. Don't get me wrong. But the greatest thing about heaven is that Christ is there. The One that loves us, that gave His life for us, that reconciled us to His Father. That is the main glory of heaven. Ask yourself this morning, if you could have all the nice stuff of heaven without Christ, would you take it? And if you would, maybe you need to think through your affection for Christ. Spend some time meditating on that. But thanks be to Christ that we don't have to choose between paradise and being with Christ. They are, in His generosity and His love for us, they are one and the same. And that if that loved one who we love so much, if they trusted Christ, we will get to be with them. We will get to enjoy a place of absolute peace and joy. A place we can't even imagine. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. We can't even imagine. I've been noticing, been watching my two smallest ones, two little girls playing, and just, just the imagination, just with a word, the living room become, becomes the ocean. And they start swimming around in it, or they start talking about mermaids or starfish, and it becomes that to them. I mean, the, the, when we get old, we, we kind of lose it, but the, the heart of man can, can imagine amazing things. And yet the Scripture says it has never even entered into our imagination the beauty and the wonders and the glory of the place that's been prepared for us. So that, that should be encouraging. I don't know what kind of suffering you're in right now. I don't know how burdened you were when you came into this room today, but know that the sufferings of this world are not permanent. And one day the the realities of this broken world will give away to the true reality of a world that's been prepared for us, a place in which we'll never hurt, which we'll never suffer again. And Jesus knew that that was important before His disciples went through this suffering to know that there's that place that's prepared for them. Second, we see that this, this place uh, is a place of salvation. There is a destination with only one route. We live in a world in the age of smartphone GPS, right? And you can find lots of routes to one place. Back when we lived on Schuler, there weren't many routes to LRA. There was a couple. You didn't have many choices. Now we live out by the, by the bypass. I'm still, after seven months, trying to figure out what's the quickest way here because it just there's so many different ways to get there from where we live. So I constantly play with my iPhone just to see how the quickest way here is there. And, and, and what's great is when you go on trips, you can pick the route that's got the Chick-fil-A. Amen? Or if you're my wife, you pick out the route that's got the Brahms ice cream or the five or six Brahms ice creams along the way. So we live in a world where man, we have lots of routes and lots of people want to take that and bring it into religion. 
And they want to say, well, God's the destination. But the routes are Jesus, Buddha, Allah, Hindu, Hindi. There's all these different routes. God's the destination. We just, we're, we're just all going to take our own route. We'll all eventually get there. But the reality is that, you know, and people criticize us as Christians because we're so exclusive. The reality is, is that, is that we proclaim an exclusive route to God because Christ Himself proclaimed Himself to be the exclusive route to God. Thomas asked, he said, hey, we don't know the way. So how are we going to get where you're going? And Jesus' reply was this, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus could not be more clear in His exclusive, ex- exclusivity. I am the one way. He says, I am the one truth. I am the one life. We live in this inclusive world. We think we are entitled to our own way to God. I don't like that way to God. I don't like the cross. That's all. That makes me feel bad. So I want to pick a different way. I want to just be a decent person and get to God that way. Or I want to pick a religion that doesn't make me feel so bad about my sin. And we think we're in our world that we're entitled to our own truth. The truth is relative. Yeah, that's true for you, but not for me. It's the truth. It's not relative. It's either true or it's not true. We live in a world that says, ah, your truth is your truth. And we, we say, hey, your life is your life. You can live it however you want. But Jesus runs contrary contrary to all of that he runs contrary to our current world and he says no i'm the one way i am the one truth and i'm the one life you're not entitled to your own ways to god there's only one way to god and it is me just to make sure that after he says that he says just to make sure no one no one comes to the father except through me He could not be more clear. It's not in a set of rules. It's not even a way of life that we live, but it's our reconciliation to God is is a person. A person that has lived for us. It is the work of Jesus Christ, the, the life He lived and the death he died in our place so that if we might believe, we might be resurrected as He was resurrected. Jesus is our one way. He is our one truth. He is our one life. This morning, if you don't know Christ, can I just stop for a moment and say, won't you come to Him? That there's nothing for you to do. There's no way of getting to Him by, I've got to go clean up this bad habit, or I've got to make myself more presentable if I'm going to present myself to God. 
none of that's the way to God. The way to God is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the way to God is to run, not worried about your habits, not worry, we're not worried about your addictions or your sins, but you run or fixing them on your own, you run to Christ. You grab hold of Christ and you believe in Him. And then, then He helps you live a life that's more obedient to Him. But don't wait. Don't look for another way. There is no other way besides running and clinging to Christ and what He has done for your behalf. That is the Gospel. Next, we see that Christ speaks of a place of the Father that has been revealed by Christ. It's been revealed by Himself. He returns to this common theme we see throughout John. And it is this, is that if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I'm, we're one. We are, he's in Me and I'm in Him. And some of, the, some of the disciples, they just haven't gotten that yet. I mean, Philip, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And so Jesus chastises Philip, saying, by this time, like you should know. We know that he's a believer. He's one of the eleven. It's already been said that they are believers. But while he's chastising him, he also just displays this wonderful patience and just once again, explaining to him, hey, I'm the Father and the Father's in me. And we are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Just as Jesus said to him, verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He just once again implores Philip, hey man, you got to believe. Believe that I and the Father are one. What Jesus did when He set foot on this earth See, in, 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 a, in a major way, he, he brought heaven down. You know, we, we, we look at the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, right, that says, uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, uh, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy, your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want to you wanna know what that looks like? You look to Jesus. Because Jesus brought the will of God to the world. He showed us what the will of God looks like when it's walking around in the flesh, loving people and proclaiming truth to people. And so, in, in many ways, when Christ entered our world, He brought God into the midst of it. He brought the throne room of God, in a sense, down to earth. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. And fourthly, Christ speaks of a place of authority from which He will continue His works through His people. We see the greatness of His works proclaimed here. It says, of, our, of, of the works that we're going to do for Christ. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me 
will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. So this is a, this is a text that's been debated a lot. Like, what does Jesus mean when he says that the people who believe in him will do greater works than him? That's a bold statement, is it not? There are some who, who say, well, that's just for the disciples. It's, he was talking to the disciples, and sure, they were gonna, there, some of them were going to raise the dead, and some of them were going to do some amazing works, but that's not really for us. But He says here, whoever believes in me. He doesn't say, just you guys. Is he simply re- referencing the acts of humility that he's done? recently with the foot washing and he's just saying hey you're gonna do greater works of humility well when when the works of christ are brought up it almost always includes his amazing works of power as well does it mean uh greater in the sense of quantity i mean that's an obvious thing because i mean when you look at the church and how long we've existed and how many of us there are in the church if you look at sheer quantity of works, then yeah, we've done more than more quantity works than Christ. But the text doesn't really use the Greek word um, that references quantity. So does it mean greater in the sense of more supernatural or more spectacular? I mean, it, it's hard, hard to think about if we're going to do greater works. You look at Christ, He walked on water. Uh, he rose a, a man that had been dead for four days. Fed a multitude with, the, with a never-ending fish fry. Like, I haven't seen any of that in any of us in, in the church in which I grew up. So what does He mean that we'll do greater works? A clue is given in a parallel verse found back in John chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says this, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. So there's a, Jesus says there's a promise here that, that God's going to do even more amazing works than you've seen already. And if you read on, we see that He's talking about the death, and specifically the resurrection of Christ. His own resurrection. And so what is being referenced here, I believe by Christ, is this dawning of this age of the church in which we operate and we live and we minister after the full revelation of Christ's work. When Jesus was walking the earth during His ministry, He was setting things in place, preparing for that final work of crucifixion and then resurrection. But we, as Christians, in the church age, get to live in which that reality is is fully known and fully realized. And so, there is an amazing, great power that we have as the church of God. There has never been a better time to believe in God and to be working for God than in the time after His wonderful death and His resurrection 
for us. We proclaim a risen Christ to a world in which the Spirit of God is at work. We minister after He says it is finished. It's done. But notice why we are able to do these amazing works. It says in verse 12, because I'm going to the Father. Because I'm going to the Father. He says, hey, you're going to be able to do this because I'm going to the Father. Okay, so we need to realize here that what Jesus is saying is, hey, I've been working, and now you're taking over. I've been doing works, now it's going to be your works. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to heaven, to the Father, so that I can work through you. Still Christ's work. Every good thing that we do as a church is Christ's work. Because Jesus went back to the Father, we are able to do greater works. But notice how He does these greater works. He does them through the prayers of His people. This is the avenue of the works. In verse 13 and 14, Whoever, whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I'll be honest, a verse like this can sometimes awaken, even as a pastor, my cynicism. I look at this the amazing ministry of Christ, the miraculous works He did, the conversions that happened, Lame people walking, hungry people eating, blind people seeing, dead people being raised from the dead. And then it says, we'll do greater works than these? That because of His death and, and because of His resurrection, that our ministries, our lives of serving Him are empowered in a way that not even His ministry was empowered? I mean, the Gospel doesn't always look like it's having that much of an effect on us. If we're honest, marriages and churches are sometimes a train wreck. Addictions run rampant in the church under those who sat under the preaching of the Gospel. We can barely maintain attendance during the summer months. People seem to reject the Gospel all the time. Where is this empowered ministry? And I wonder if it's because we spend so little time asking. Could it be that as Michael so eloquently put that our expectations are off. That the reason we're not more awed is because we're not asking. We receive not because we're asking now. We're not asking God to do amazing, amazing things and begging Him over and over to do amazing things. 
I wonder if we're taking advantage of our great high priest who Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus doesn't said as this detached deity that finished His work on the cross and then went and sat on the throne and He's just relaxing. No, He's sitting there on His throne of grace waiting to bring grace into our world. And yet we don't ask. We don't daily go to Him and ask Him to just do things that will blow our mind. Let us become a church that expects great things. Here's what I want you to take away from our text this morning. I want you to first of all know that your troubled heart can take peace. That if you are in Christ, know this, that even if you walked in here full of pain, full of suffering, that it's nothing compared to the eternity that you'll have in Christ's place. The place that He prepares in love for you to arrive. Take heart this morning. If you're not in Christ this morning, know that that Christ is the only way to be reconciled to God. There's no other way. There's no other route you can take. No set of moral, moral, moral teachings. There's no other Savior. There's nothing you must do. You simply must run to Christ who did it all. And lastly, I wonder if you need to ask God for something great this morning. Something you know that you can ask in His name. Something that you know He might want to give you. Perhaps a sin that has entangled you that for so long that you've even quit asking for help. Maybe today is the day that you need to ask God to do something great and deliver you from that sin. Perhaps someone in your life that you have shared or need to share the Gospel with and you want to just ask God to save them this morning. To give you an opportunity this week to talk to them about the Gospel and that He would, that they would respond to the Gospel. Perhaps there's some illness in your life or in the life of someone that you love, that you haven't really brought it to Christ and asked Him to do something amazing. Maybe it's a marriage that you've given up on, that you're still in, but you've given up on it. Maybe you need to ask God to not just help the marriage survive, but bring you in the, to the greatest years you've ever had in your marriage. Be bold. Be bold. We have a Christ who sits on the throne of grace waiting to help in our time of need. So I would love it this morning if we could have a place of prayer this morning. Maybe you come, come and just pray together. Ask God for amazing things. Ask God for some things that you should have asked for a long time ago. Just ask God. Please.
Let's pray for God to do amazing things. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. I'm going to ask you to please stand and respond. However God has placed on your heart this morning through His Word, respond to Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we are a people that so often take for granted the promises of prayer. God, so often we have not because we've asked not. And God, help us to believe this morning. Help us to believe You for great things and to ask You for great things in Christ's name. God, if there's someone here who doesn't know You, I pray that they would trust You, that they would run to You this morning. And God, Still our heavy hearts with the beautiful reality that we're not home yet. That this suffering world will give way to those who are in you to a world of joy void of, devoid of suffering. God, move in our hearts. God, help us to just an amazing time of prayer this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.